I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 25 today. I'm not sure how that affects our pace. Uh, (laughs) Speeds it up a little. So we'll be looking at verses 3 to 25 today. We covered verses 1 and 2 last time. And this will take us just into day 6, the first five plus days of creation. And then we will uh, leave the creation of man, uh, verses 26 and on, uh, to, uh, to next week. So uh, let's, let's uh, read. We'll begin again at verse 1 of Genesis 1, and we'll read through to 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, And separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. One of the things that is immediately striking as we read through that today is just how different this is from the way our society views the formation of our earth and human existence. It just obviously is very different in what it's saying. So obviously many, very unsurprisingly, would deny what is written here. It's just flat out wrong, they would say. And many who are raised in the church and raised reading the Bible and being taught that it is true, uh, many eventually come to doubt what is written here because of what modern evolutionary science says with its claims of being settled and being really beyond dispute. If you deny evolution today, many people will look at you as if you deny the science that goes into a light bulb. Uh, They would see you as every bit as foolish to deny evolution as denying the science that would go into a light bulb. Uh, You're just a silly, science-denying person who's out of touch with reality and you're not really living in the real world. You refuse to come to grips with it because you're weak and need to fall back upon your faith in order to find meaning, etc. On it goes. And I would suggest that the possibility of being viewed that way has scared a lot of Christians into conceding way too much when it comes to this matter of creation. Many of us just desperately don't want to be thought of by the world badly. We don't want to be thought of as being backwards. And so these kinds of accusations against us, they sting, and we don't want that to be true. And so we can begin then to play by the world's rules and start to accommodate Scripture to what modern science would tell us. Or we may not be so much motivated by fear of man and wanting man's approval, but perhaps but simply by ignorance. You know, we just, well, I'm not a scientist, and so who am I to question these great scientists of the world? And so I've got to accommodate to whatever scientists are telling me. And as I said last time, Genesis, of course, we believe is God's word, every bit as much as the rest of the Bible. And so our task, again, is to come under God's word and under its authority. We submit ourselves to what it says. We don't approach the Bible with our rationalism and stand over it and predetermine the types of things that can and cannot be believed in the 21st century. But what I'm not saying is that we should just be the type of people who put our fingers in our ears and refuse to engage with any tough questions, refuse to engage at all with the world on these matters, and who just instead retreat in fear of being proven wrong by scientists. We are not some sort of fundamentalists who are prepared to deny what is clearly there like light bulb science or something like that. We believe, of course, that the scriptures are true, that they are not going to be out of touch with what we find in the world. We do not reject 
science. In fact, the very reason that science exists is because God has created an orderly world. And so there are things to be discovered. What we do reject, however, is bad science. And, moreover, Scripture teaches us, really it demands of us, that we would be skeptical and careful in what we receive from a godless society. We should be skeptical about what a godless society would demand that we affirm about the foundation of the world. If man has no fear of God, and then they're saying, this is what you have to affirm about the creation of all things, they wouldn't even use the word creation, about how we all got here, that ought to raise alarm bells. Far from saying, well, who am I? I'll just go with whatever you have to say. We should not take that approach. Again, Scripture tells us in Romans 1, that man suppresses the truth about God that is plainly revealed in creation in unrighteousness. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are also told that much so-called wisdom in the world is indeed folly. And the world does not know God through climbing the ladder of human wisdom. The fact of the matter is we cannot observe and test the formation of the earth as we can observe and test light bulb science. They are not the same thing. As we continue through Genesis, again, I will happily take the biblical account of how this all began over the theories of the world's elites any day. And they are indeed theories, make no mistake. In man's rejection of God, we do become fools. So yes, it is true that unbelieving man can still make great discoveries in God's created world. But there is an unrighteous suppression of the truth about the creator God and his creation that is also found in scientists, in university professors, as well as in non-scientists and very ordinary human beings. Elsewhere in Scripture, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are treated as history, as telling us facts of things that really occurred and people that really lived. Some people would seek to pass off, and this is one of the ways some professing Christians will try to um, uphold Scripture and evolution and so on, They will seek to pass off Genesis 1 through 11 as not really teaching his history. They'll say that really it's just myth or sort of poetry, really just teaching us that behind everything that we see, yes, is God. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not really meant to say that all of these things actually happened in the way that Genesis 1 to 11 say they happened. However, when we look at the New Testament scriptures, not to mention the rest of the Old Testament as well, but even if we just look at the New Testament, Jesus himself, Paul, Peter, and the author to the Hebrews, they all refer to various events within Genesis chapters 1 to 11 
as history, as historical events that really happened. I mean, we saw in Galatians, Paul appealing to, um, to uh, Abraham, who of course is in chapter 12 and on. But we see Paul also refer to Adam and Eve to support an important teaching and doctrine like marriage. Paul also refers to Adam in establishing the important teaching to the core, at the core of the gospel itself that Christ is the last Adam, second Adam. It's come to redeem and rescue what has gone wrong in the first Adam, who in Paul's understanding and teaching really truly existed, really truly represented man, really and truly and through his sin brought about the curse. So important doctrines like marriage and the gospel itself hinge on these texts teaching us history, what really occurred. So let's work through the word of God here again in these verses 3 to 25. These words that reveal to us that God created this well-ordered world through his powerful word and that it was very good. So as we go through this, three points to our outline, we're going to look at God's powerful word first, secondly, God's orderly universe, and then thirdly, God's good creation. So let's begin God's powerful word. You probably noticed as we read through it that there are a number of words and phrases that are repeated throughout this account. One of those phrases is, and God said. So in verse 3, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Eight times in this chapter, God's creative action is preceded by this phrase, and God said. And they are most often followed then by another statement, and it was so. In verse 3, it says, and there was light. We have God speaking something, and then this repetition, and it was so. It came to pass. It happened. So uh, we see it in verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse. And if you look down at the end of verse 7, and it was so. And in verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, Then the end of the verse, and it was so. Verse 14, and God said. Jump down to the end of verse 15, and it was so. Verse 20 also begins, and God said. And while it doesn't explicitly say, and it was so, clearly it demonstrates it was so. Uh, What he said came to pass. Creatures filled the waters and the skies. And then in verse 24, and God said is again rounded out with, and it was so. While verse 26 begins, in the ESV at least, if you have one of those, then God said, although in Hebrew it's the exact same wording as all the other places where ESV translates it, and God said. This repetition is intentional. It is driving home a point, and the point that it's driving home specifically is the power of God's word. He speaks and creation comes into being. He speaks, and things that were not are. 
He speaks and creation does his bidding. Again, if we think back to last week as we began this series and focused in on God and and the God of the Bible, God as the Bible presents him right out of the gate. This is revealing to us an ultimate power and an ultimate authority. This being that is God speaks and what he commands comes to pass. The most powerful human being who issues commands, it doesn't work out this way. God speaks and it happens. And it is right, moreover, that his voice is heeded. This reality has very profound implications. For example, if we consider that Moses would have written Genesis for Israel while they were in the wilderness... After Sinai had occurred, when God had spoken to them and issued the Ten Commandments and entered into the Sinai covenant with the people of Israel, there would be a clear implication, as Moses writes this and people read this, that the same God who spoke all things into existence and formed a habitable world then for man has also spoken to them at Sinai. The word of God delivered through Moses was to be heeded just as creation obeyed God as he brought it into existence. Nothing is more appropriate than submitting to the divine word. Remember from last week, we read from John chapter 1. And when we consider John chapter 1, we see that the Apostle John, as he wrote that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is telling us that Jesus himself is the very Word of God. So Christ's Word, as Christ came into the world and took on human flesh, Christ's Word, as the great prophet, was every bit as authoritative as that which was spoken at creation, because, John tells us, Jesus is the eternal word. John does this by making a a very clear parallel to creation. So you remember John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning. That right away, we think Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, the word is is a he, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As God speaks creation into being, he does this through the eternal Son. When the eternal Son takes flesh to himself to save and redeem fallen sinners, his word is infallible because he is the eternal word through whom all things were made. Just as God created through his word, so his word will be mighty to redeem his people. Again, I'm not sure we can fully grasp the significance of this, of what this means for Christ's authority and for his, how his word and he himself ought to be received with humility and in faith and belief and with repentance God's word, spoken and or then written, 
is authoritative. By his word, he spoke all things into existence. And in his word delivered and passed down to us, he further reveals himself to us. And when he declares to men, thus saith the Lord, we are to receive it in faith. Again, we come under its authority. When we hear and consider what he has proclaimed and spoken, his commands, we dare not be dismissive about them or flippant about them. And if our response is, well, that doesn't make sense to me initially, then we dig in. We think the problem, therefore, is with me and in my understanding. And when we hear God's promises that he makes, we know that his word will not and cannot fall to the ground. Because this is the same God whose word spoke creation into being. So we have God's powerful word. Secondly, we see God's ordered universe. In these verses, 3 through 25, God takes this formless void that we looked at last week in verse 2, and he now fashions it into a habitable place for all manner of creatures. And it begins on the first day with the creation of light. So in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. So verse 3, he creates it. Verse 4, he saw that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The creation of light here is interesting because it is created prior to the creation of the sun. I don't know if you've ever realized that or stopped to consider that. Now, the sun is not created until day four, but here we have the creation of light. And for some, this might bother them. Uh, some even use this to argue that the days that are referred to here can't be literal days because there's no sun yet. So how can you have a day as we now know it if there isn't the sun in existence yet? But I think such argument misses the point here and that there's a better explanation of what's going on here and why God created in this way. I think what this is saying is that none of these things, light and day, are merely the result of the Son's existence. Behind all of this stands God Almighty who is the ultimate source and upholder of all these things, of day itself and of light, including the sun's light. And neither of these things are merely the result of natural processes. And the sun itself is not the greatest thing in our universe. Now, there have been many who have worshipped the sun and all of the, the, the stars in the heavenly abode. John Calvin comments on this, I think, very helpfully. He says, according to our notions... We so include this power to give light in them. That is, we conclude that the sun and the stars have all their own power to give light. We conclude this, that if they were taken away from the world, it would seem impossible for any light to remain. Therefore, the Lord, by the very order of the creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. 
Even if the sun were to be destroyed, light is something that God can give. That's what he demonstrates here. Indeed, if we jump to the end of Scripture in Revelation 22.5, it tells us that in the new creation, God's people will need no light of lamp or sun. How can we even fathom a world like that? Because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The sun is indeed an awesome thing to behold, to consider. If you just look up facts about the sun. But behind it all, behind the sun, the creator of it is God who possesses a much greater glory than the created sun. And so light and evening and morning began even before the sun and moon, before the laws of nature as we know them, before creation had gotten very far, if you will. We see orderliness taking shape throughout these verses. Let's continue. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. There's a lot of debate amongst Bible-believing Christians about what exactly this is referring to, what exactly this expanse is. A part of the difficulty is tied to what is even the best way to translate this word, expanse. Other translations, if you have the King James, the word here is firmament, which suggests a hard, a firm surface. There was a, an older understanding of this text that developed uh, into a, a theory called the vapor canopy theory, which argued that this expanse was referring to the atmosphere and that above it sat waters at one time, which were then released during the flood, which accounts for the water of the flood. That was a, a very popular theory. You've maybe heard it. Uh, but today, virtually every Creation scientist rejects this as being untenable scientifically and also it's not exegetically necessary. It's not a necessary thing to affirm from the words that we have here in Genesis. Others argue that this is referring to the separation of seawaters from the rain clouds. It's not intended to be necessarily real precise in its language, that the waters above, it's speaking as human beings standing on earth, we look up, there's obviously seawaters here, and then there's water that falls down from the sky, that this is talking about the, the clouds, the rain clouds that are formed. Some still hold that. Still others argue that this expanse or firmament is a reference to the crust of the earth, and that the separation is between the seawaters and the fountains of the great deep that will be referenced again later in Genesis 6, but burst forth when the flood occurs. I think that is a, 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 an interesting uh, take and theory, but I, I, I'm not totally convinced that's what Genesis is saying here because this expanse or firmament is called heaven here, or it's referred to as the heavens. So I find that 
difficult to be a reference to earth crust, earth's crust, though I think genuine brothers and sisters who hold to that view aren't crazy. It's possible, but I'm not totally convinced either. And so one other view is that this refers to the creation of not only the atmosphere, but also outer space itself. That creation, as we know from verse 2, was initially, in its initial stage, water and formless and void. And now we have this separation of waters. And so this implication, if this is referring to this spreading out, this beating out of the entire universe as we would look up and see it, including outer space, then this would imply that there is somewhere out there an edge, an end to this universe, that it doesn't go on forever. And that if one could get there, which we never have and likely never will, that there would be a firmament there and there would be waters above it. Of course, that's not something that we can prove and observe that that's the way it is, but possible. But what, what is clear for sure as we go through this and as we read these words is that God is taking this creation and he is shaping this formlessness and bringing order in preparation for the creatures that God is going to create. In verse 9, this continues. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So there's now dry land appearing. Previously, just water covering the surface, and now there is dry land, perhaps an initially just a one supercontinent, but they're separated waters from the seas. Then on the same day, verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Again, with vegetation and plant life, there is order here. The seeds which contain the ability to produce more of its own kind are created. It is a marvelous Design that vegetation of various kinds can reproduce and grow again the same kind of vegetation through the planting of the seeds. And again, all of this bringing forth of vegetation occurs prior to the creation of the sun. And again, we can't really fathom that because today it's dependent upon the sun. But again, behind all of this, God is showing us that he stands behind it all in his wisdom and power, sustaining his creation. He is the order behind it. So once more, I think John Calvin is helpful here. He says, we now see, and he's talking about in our own day, which he wrote a long time ago, but it continues to be true now in our day. We now see, indeed, that the earth is quickened by the sun to cause it to bring forth its fruits. We're clearly dependent upon the sun. We understand this. Nor was God ignorant of this law of nature, which he has since ordained since this day. 
But in order that we might learn to refer all things to him, he did not then make use of the sun or moon. So again, he brought forth vegetation apart from the use of the sun or moon to show us once again that all things have their beginning in him. He stands behind it all. On the fourth day in verses 14 to 19, God creates the sun now and the moon and the stars called the lights in the expanse of the heavens to now separate day from night. The natural order as we now know it is taking shape here. God creates the sun as an instrument to sustain the earth and to give it light. And the created lights, we're told, are for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Again, there's order here to all of this. There are natural seasons that are fixed, and we adjust ourselves accordingly. We sow our seed in the spring, and then we reap in the fall. And then in the winter, we mainly just survive. And then in the spring, we start over again. There's an order to this that we didn't make ourselves. It is there already. God has created it this way. We also use these great lights to track our days, our months and years. We note the passage of time in this way. We also see in the Old Covenant that Israel had a religious calendar where feasts and celebrations, festivals, were dependent upon the time of year. Moreover, as we think of orderliness here, throughout these verses, throughout this whole account, we have this phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning, the blank day, the first day, the second day, the third, and so on. I, I see no legitimate reason to take this as anything other than a 24-hour period. The ordinary sense of the word day here, especially as we consider it being tied to the, the, the phrase evening and morning and then a number, the, the fourth day, fifth day, the ordinary sense of the word here demands that we think of this as a 24-hour period. It's, again, part of God's creation. He's fixing seven days to a week and establishing this rhythm for mankind to work six and to rest on the seventh. And we'll talk more about that, especially the seventh day when we get there in a couple of weeks. But just consider Exodus 31, 17. The Sabbath, that seventh day of resting, is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, God says, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Again, I like that depicts the creation occurred in six days as we would think of days with a seventh to rest. This too is part of the orderliness of creation. And then on the fifth day, in verses 20 to 23, God created the sea creatures and the birds which fly across or on the face of the expanse. And they were to reproduce, we're told, according to their kinds. Again, that's a repeated phrase, according to their kinds, according to its kind. This is not chaotic. This is not random, but it's orderly. And God even blesses these creatures to multiply, to reproduce after their own kind, and to fill the earth. In verses 24 and 25, we see the same is true of livestock and beasts of the earth on day six. Now, just 
briefly, creationists do not, we, we do not deny natural selection. Uh, th- that's something that creationists are often charged with. If you believe the Bible, then you deny that changes occur within a species over time. That, that you're saying God created all the animals exactly as we see them today, back on those six days of creation. And that, that's not, in fact, what the Bible says. That's not what we have to believe, and I don't know any creationist who does. Uh, there are changes within species that occur over time. Uh, the fittest do indeed survive. Uh, we, we acknowledge that. You could get all types of dogs that we see today from an original pair of wolf-like dogs. We don't deny that. We need not deny that. I don't think we should. But what creationists do deny is that this is somehow proof of evolution from molecules to man. At the end of the day, yes, changes occur within dogs, but dogs are still dogs. In fact, natural selection involves the loss of genetic material, of DNA, not the addition of new DNA, which morphs something from one kind of creature into another. So God has created animals according to their kinds, and they reproduce according to their kinds. In all of this, we have a God of order who creates an orderly universe. Earth's perfect distance from the sun is not an accident, nor is the sun's governance of our day. It is not just dumb luck that we happen to have air that we can breathe. The light of moon, the moon, the moon reflecting the light of the sun to light up our night is not an accident. All of this planned by God. The the rules of nature that we can see that govern this world as we know it, they are not eternal. Behind all of that stands the creator God who designed all of this. Hebrews reminds us that the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of his power. None of this could continue day after day and year after year if he were to cease this task of upholding it. I think the way this account is presented to us, even as creating light before the sun and vegetation before the sun, day and evening and night and day, 24-hour period before the sun, revealing to us that all of this holds together because God designed it to be so and upholds it. This orderly world is why true science is fruitful. It is why two plus two, in fact, equals four. There is order to be discovered. There are laws put in place by Almighty God by which he governs his universe. And as we discover them, he ought to receive the glory for this. Thirdly, God's good creation. Another repeated phrase in this chapter is the statement that God's creation was good. Begins in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. On the third day, he saw that the separation of land and sea was good, as was the creation of vegetation. The fourth and fifth days have the same statement, and God saw that it was good, verses 18, 21, and 25. And then when we get to the end of creation, in verse 31, which we didn't read earlier, 
But when we get to the end of creation, 31, and God saw that everything he saw, sorry, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The word good can sometimes mean useful and productive, as when Deuteronomy continually refers to the land of Canaan as a good land that the Lord our God is giving to us, to Israel. However, the word good also has a moral sense to it. And here, creation is good in every possible way. There is no imperfection to what God had created. As of yet, in Genesis chapter 1, there is no sin in this creation. This is not yet an Ecclesiastes world at this point in history. There's no futility yet. There's no vanity and chasing after the wind yet. There would be no sowing here without reaping. This is not, additionally, an evolutionist's world where death and decay exist from the beginning, forming the natural cycle of life and even being necessary in order to get us to the first man and woman, whatever that is. Again, confusion as a result of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. That we don't know and people cannot, they, they will not answer the question of what is a woman. God's creation is good. He created it good. This is repeated for us throughout these verses. And it's important for us to note this. Because as we see the world today, it's quite obvious that there, is, there are problems in the world. There are many things we would say are not good. The world today has been subjected to futility as the result of sin and God's subsequent curse upon the earth. And we'll get into that, of course, as we get to Genesis chapter 3. But this is not the way it was at the start. A biblical understanding of the world recognizes that God created all things good, though we see today horrific evil at present due to sin. Indeed, the very good creation itself, not just human beings, but the created natural order, if you will, has been subjected to futility, as we read in Romans chapter 8. As earthquakes and tornadoes and other natural disasters destroy mankind and man's labor, we are reminded of the devastation of sin. And even so, we also know that God's handiwork has not been completely wiped out. The heavens, even still, even on this side of Genesis chapter 3, even on this side of the entrance of sin, the heavens still declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, as David says in Psalm 19. The sun still rises, so to speak, and the rains still come. And as generations come and generations go, God still sustains his creation. And he does so as he moves it along to an appointed end. Though man has plunged God's good creation into darkness through sin, and though we deserve to be judged severely for our sins, 
God retains a purpose and a plan to bring about a new creation. And in one of the great mysteries of the universe, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word, has taken on flesh and walked among us in order to redeem fallen sinners. He has taken up the cause of us pitiable wretches. He has come on behalf of all who the Father has given to him, who would believe in him to earn our salvation. And he has done this by living a perfectly righteous life and then offering himself in our stead on the cross to have the wrath of God poured out upon him, the wrath that we deserve for our sins, for our violations of God's just and holy law for spitting in the face of our Creator. And the Son not only died for our sins, but He rose again from the dead, as His sacrifice was accepted by God, redemption secured and purchased. And the very same Word of God that spoke light into existence has also declared to us other matters. He has declared to us that He will judge the world through Christ Jesus. And he has promised that all of those and only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, are graciously and mercifully pardoned by the Creator, forgiven, our sins wiped clean, granted an eternal inheritance one day in the new creation that will be even greater than the original creation as sin will no more be even a possibility at that point. Genesis 1 reveals to us the greatness and majesty of our God. And it reveals to us that he is to be trusted, that what he says will indeed come to pass. Trust the word of our God on these things. Turn to the Son and believe. Place your faith and hope in Christ Jesus alone. And as you do that, and for all who do, trust that the same God who spoke all things into existence is able and mighty to save you to the uttermost. That he indeed, that we hold him to his promise to his word, that he, that, that if you trust in Christ Jesus, you are indeed forgiven. That he justifies the ungodly by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by working ourselves up into some state of perfection. When you feel the accusation of your sinfulness and fallenness, and you know that once again you have blown it and fallen short of God's glory, you've fallen short of God's Commands falling short of God's perfection. Remember the God who has promised that all who look to the Son are forgiven. As you look out into the future and you fear what is to come, and you wonder, will he keep me to the end? Will I be standing at the end on the last day because I am weak and in many ways feel pathetic? Trust him to keep his word to keep you to the end. Not because you are so strong and so certain of everything, but because he is good and gracious and faithful to keep his word. We we hold God in all things to his word. 
We, we count on it. And again, right out of Genesis chapter 1, he is demonstrating to us that this is a well-placed hope and a well-placed faith. Nothing can and will stay his hand, for there is none greater than our God, the creator of all things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We praise you and thank you for your word to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in and through the scriptures. Father, we look out and we do see your handiwork. We see the greatness and the intricacy of your creation. We don't understand the half of it. Not even close to getting our heads around it all. There are so many mysteries for all of our discoveries that man has made. So many things we do not understand in this world. And behind this is you. And we can't get our minds around the glory of who you are. But we know that you have created all things. We believe this. It's true. Father, we confess to you that our sins are, are far greater against you than we realize. That you are such a, a greater and more awesome being than we can fathom. And therefore, our violations of your commands that we often think of as maybe not a big deal are indeed a big deal. Such that it took your son coming to earth as man to die for us to satisfy your wrath against our sins. If there was any other way, surely it would be done. But we praise you for this wisdom that you have revealed in and through your word, that you have revealed to us who believe through your spirit. Father, help us to trust you. I pray that you'd keep us from the fear of man, that we would not be fearful of what man might say about us or how we might be derided and thought of as fools. Above all, for our standing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we, we need your help every day. And we thank you that though we are weak, you are helping us through each day such that we are still standing. Father, we, we desire that you would just give us one massive burst of strength to last forever. But we are continually in need of your help and your grace. And I pray that we would therefore come to you continually in prayer to appeal to you. Come to you in your word and find food there to sustain us. Father, we continue to look to you for grace and for mercy each day. I pray that you would strengthen your people with confidence that you and your word are to be trusted. And we thank you again for all of your goodness and kindness to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.